open your Bibles with me again to Genesis chapter 1. We begin our journey on day 5 today. Taking us six weeks to get here. (laughs) On day 1, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was shapeless and empty, enveloped in darkness. A depth of water that we can't even begin to imagine. But the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the earth. It was hovering over the earth. On this day, God created light. His glory illuminating the earth that He had created, dispelling the darkness from the night. And He named them darkness and night. On day two, God separated the water from the water and created the great expanse or the atmosphere that we have around us today. He named that expanse heaven. On day three, God gathered the waters into one giant sea and called forth the dry land beneath the water to emerge dry and ready to give birth to the vegetation that He would instruct. Vegetation would cover the earth and provide food for His creation that was yet to come. On day four, God made the lights in the heavens, creating a vast universe consisting of an estimation of 200 billion galaxies, most of which have not yet been discovered. He also made the stars, and astronomers estimate that there are at least 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And if you think that there are an estimated 200 billion galaxies... That's a lot of stars, right? And the verse simply says, and He made the stars also. Quite an understatement of what it is God did on day four. (laughs) We come to day five, and this is where creation really makes a significant shift. Having completed the forming of the earth in days one through three, and having also made the three great separations, separating darkness from light, waters from the waters, and dry land from the seas. God's task is now to fill the earth that He has created, and He does so by creating the living creatures. This is where we find ourselves today, here on day 5. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 23, four verses. And this is really going to serve as a bit of a introduction into what we will take up in greater detail next week and the week after as we look at day 6 in creation. But let's read together these four verses and see what God's Word says to us today. God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Now that ending statement is always important because it communicates what I understand to be a 24-hour solar period marked by day and evening. And we've already talked about that in detail. And so as we look at the, the end of this day and what, what it is that God has created, it is absolutely remarkable. And there are some interesting things that are part of this that need to be fleshed out. So on day three, God made vegetation with seeds to produce after its own kind. But here on day five, 
And again on day six, the living creatures that God creates are different from plant life in three very significant ways. Now this is a bit of an introduction and overview of the passage itself, but it's important to separate these, at least in my mind, from the verses and as we look at the particulars of what it is that God has created. So in creating the living creatures, there are three important distinctions. The first one is this, God created. Now that seems very obvious on the front end, but it's actually more significant than we might recognize in just a cursory reading. Surprisingly, this is only the second time that this term has been used in all of the creation account. In every aspect of creation, God's decree is completed upon His spoken word, but the term created is not used in each piece of the act of creation. As an example, in day 1, verse 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing, God created the world that we live in. And then He would say on day on, on verse 3 of day 1, let there be light. In day 2, in verse 6, He says, let there be an expanse, the atmosphere. And then in verse 7, it says, God made the expanse. On day 3, let the waters be gathered and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The earth was already covered in water and God simply gathered up the water into into a single place and caused the dry land or excuse me caused the land underneath the waters to emerge dry and ready to host a vast array of vegetation and it says in verse 11 let the earth sprout vegetation and then in verse 12 the earth brought forth on day 4 it says in verse 14 let their lights be in the expanse and then in verse 16 God made the two great lights and he made the stars also so there's a distinction here about the term being used the term created being used and it says here in 21 God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind so the usage of the term created means direct creation out of nothing now why is that an important distinction It's important because what God created, He did so intentionally and intelligently. Just as the universe we live in, and specifically the earth we live on, did not appear as a result of some catastrophic event in space, the living creatures God created are not the result of millions of years of evolution created by natural causes. And so the usage of the term created here is to highlight what it is that God specifically, intentionally, and intelligently created by the act of His verbal decree. So when God created the heavens and the earth, He created the earth in this shapeless, empty, formless mass of water in a, in a, a land that could not yet be seen. He created that specifically and intentionally out of nothing. He unveils that creation throughout the days as He adds to it the vegetation and then the lights in the skies, which He also created out of nothing. But this is very, very important because God specifically created them and it gives an indication of a difference in what it is God is creating in the living creatures from what it is that God God has created in what was previously inanimate object. 
Secondly, this important distinction is God created living creatures. Verse 20 says, And God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Now as we go back and look at the vegetation that God created, plants are biological organisms. They have genetic structures. They have their own biological systems. And they have the ability to reproduce after their own kind. But the living creatures on day five are quite different. The word creature here that parallels what God created comes from the Hebrew word nephesh. And in the Hebrew that gives an indication of a soul. Now hang on, don't go too far with that yet. So living creatures move. They have a central nervous system. And they have a conscious life. Vegetation, that is not true, although they are biological organisms and they have a genetic structure. They do not have a conscious life. They do not necessarily move like the living creatures do, and they certainly don't have a central nervous system. They don't possess an eternal spirit. We're talking about the living creatures here who have a soul. They don't possess an eternal spirit like man, nor were they created in the image of God like man, but the living creatures are remarkably different from the vast array of vegetation. So as we think about the animal kingdom and the marine life that God has created, they exist with a consciousness of life. Now that's kind of hard for us to really identify with, but the best way that I think that I can that I can expand upon this is very simply this. Many of us have pets, right? We love our pets. We know they move. We know they have a central nervous system. We know they have a consciousness in their life. There is this response that we get from this living creature that makes them feel like family to us, even though they're just animals. They're living creatures created with a life consciousness that we can connect to that we can find enjoyable, and when our little pets pass away, our hearts are broken, and we immediately run out and get another pet. Right, David? And then what we do? <laughs> There's something very, very different about the animal kingdom that God has created that is vastly different from the vegetation. Now, many of you have a garden, and you have plants in your house, and when they die, you go, oh, the plant died. I wonder what happened. You don't cry. I mean, you don't think about its loss, it's just a plant, but we feel differently about pets. And that's because there is this life consciousness that we can identify with. We'll get this a little bit more in just a moment. Thirdly, the third distinction here is that living creatures procreate. A huge difference from vegetation or plant life. Verse 22, God blessed them saying... The living creatures, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. Now, there's some interesting things about this. First of all, this is the first time that God blesses something, and it is unique in that it is applied 
to living creatures. We see throughout Scripture that this blessing is applied to mankind in relation to God's favor and man's obedience. God says, if you if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will punish you. So there is this blessing that comes to man from God related to obedience and God's favor upon man. So this word blessing is a theological keyword all throughout the book of Genesis, and especially in the Old Testament. It is used in the creation of man and the blessing of Noah, the covenant blessing of Abraham and the patriarchs to the nation of Israel, and eventually to all who bless Abraham and are a part of his spiritual seed. This blessing is passed on. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 or 9, even so Abraham believed God. God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are of the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now, here the blessing is applied to the animal kingdom as it relates to procreation, and it implies that the animal kingdom that God creates have a favored position in God's eyes as opposed to the vegetation. It's a very unique nuance that is woven into this through procreation, through the usage of the word blessing, and also the term created being applied to this. Only living creatures procreate. Plant life simply reproduces itself through seed, and that seed is dispersed through a number of different ways. So this blessing and procreation is also significant because it dispels the notion that the biblical language here in the creation narrative is merely to be understood as symbolic. It's not a symbolic account of how things evolved, especially for those who believe in a biblical account, but do so under the umbrella of an old earth understanding or paradigm. So, as you read through this, and as you read through the day and the evening, as you look at the way God has blessed the man, the animal kind that he has created, and you understand that it's not symbolic, that it specifically speaks to God's intentional and specific act of creation, dispelling the idea that the earth percolated for millions or billions of years, and poof! Out came the diverse animal kingdom that we see today. So scripture is expressly teaching that God completed his creation of all the sea creatures and the birds of the sky before he gave the command to reproduce. So think about this. If evolution or the old earth theory were true, it would mean that animal reproduction must have already been going on for billions of years before so many species of sea creatures and birds could emerge. But that's not what we see in the narrative here. God creates, he blesses, 
and instructs them to be fruitful and to multiply. So the three important distinctions are that God creating the, created the living creatures directly, they are created with a conscious life, and they are created with procreation as the means for reproduction. Now that's an overview of what day five consists of. Now what I want to do is read them again and look at the particulars that are woven into what it is that God has created in the living creature. So the first one that we see are the water creatures. Let's read all this together. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. So God created the water creatures. He says specifically, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And then down in 21a, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters, with, with, with which the waters swarmed after their kind. So Moses gives his inspired creation narrative. With his feet on the ground, not attempting to provide a scientific treatise on the creation of all the marine world and all the different Latin types of species that has been identified over the years, the simplicity of the description does not capture the complexity of the vast variety of what God has actually created in a very simple phrase. Swarms of creatures. Swarms of living creatures. Sea monsters. Every living creature that moves. So thinking about this, depending upon what magazine or book you read, marine biologists estimate that there are as many as a hundred million species in the ocean, they estimate a hundred million species in the ocean, and they have already identified roughly around 225 of the estimated hundred million species that exist. Now, if you were to say there were a million different species in the waters, you'd say, man, that's a lot. But they estimate that there are a hundred million species, most of which have not even been identified. So we think about, for example, and these are the living creatures today, we think about the blue whale. That is a picture of the blue whale. A blue whale is approximately the size of three full-sized school buses. Think about that. That's a great sea monster. It may not be the greatest sea monster that ever existed. We don't really know. And we really can't know. But we do know about the blue whale. By the way, you look at something like that, and is it really impossible to think that that could have swallowed Jonah and kept him for the better part of three days? This massive whale feeds on a surprisingly small creature simply known as krill. There are roughly a half a dozen or so krill in the palm of this individual's hand, and the largest sea creature that we can identify eats that and is the size of three public school buses. (laughs) Think about this. Our earth is covered by approximately 70% water, and 80% of the oceans is unmapped, unobserved, 
and unexplored. The vast majority of that 80% is unexplorable because it's depths. Because of the darkness, because of the inability to go that deep and not have the device implode because of the incredible pressure that is found the deeper you go into the waters. The oceans are filled with a vast array of creatures and these are quite different from what populates even the fresh water that is so prevalent within our world today. God created the sea monsters. God created the little creatures that feed the great sea monsters. And God has actually created the microscopic organisms that you can't even see if you were to go down with plenty of light in a mask. Quite an overstatement that God created everything, the swarms of sea creatures that are out there. Secondly, God created the sky creatures. Verse 20b and 21b said, And let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens, and every ringed bird after its kind. Now again, depending upon what you read, there are as many as 10,000 species of bird currently identifiable in our world today. That doesn't take into consideration the species that may be extinct and we would never have a record of. It's estimated that there could be as many as twice that amount of bird species flying out there in the expanse of the skies today. So a huge array, one of these is called the bee hummingbird, and this little bee hummingbird is about half the size of a typical hummingbird that you may see in your backyard. The largest bird which you have a visual image of in your mind is an ostrich. By the way, that bird cannot fly, but this bee hummingbird weighs about two grams. It flaps its wings up to 80 times a second and is roughly the size of a nickel there. Going to the other extreme, you have the albatross, which has a wingspan of approximately 12 feet. It weighs about 22 pounds, and it can fly upwards of 50 miles an hour. God created the birds of the sky in an instant. Out of nothing, intentionally and intelligently. Modern science continues to defend the theory of evolution, but it is becoming increasingly difficult to do so with a certain amount of honesty. I'm going to read some stuff for you. This is cut and paste. Don't think I'm this smart because I'm not. A gentleman recounted listening to a well-known evolutionist at a prestigious California University, and here's a summarization of what it is he said, and this kind of speech could be replicated in virtually every public university in the country and in the world today. Here's what he says. He believed that the ability to swim, the ability to fly, and the ability to travel on land were acquired characteristics. These abilities were the result of every life form's natural instinct for self-preservation. It is imagined that the earliest complex life forms came into existence when single-celled creatures morphed by sheer accident into more complex life forms. They found they could sustain themselves by consuming the simpler forms, and they developed means of moving so they could feed. 
They soon began consuming one another too. Through a process of accidental mutations that took billions of years, some of these primitive microorganisms developed into more complex and larger creatures that eventually learned to breathe air and moved onto the land to escape their predators. He pictured the earth at this point as being populated with a variety of primitive, slithering reptiles and simple, smaller, creeping things, which he referred to as snakes and bugs. Now, this is where it gets to be really, really inventive. The snakes started eating the bugs, and the bugs, knowing they faced the threat of extinction, sought inventive ways to get away from the snakes. Some of the bugs grew wings and developed the ability to fly. Others burrowed into the ground. Then the snakes began to die out for a lack of food. And in order to preserve their species, some of them grew legs and devised other ways to climb trees and dig in the earth in order to have access to the bugs. Eventually, the snakes developed hollow bones and feet and bodies. Some of them developed wings and the ability to fly so they could get more bugs. And through similar processes, great families of birds and mammals and other forms of animal life developed, including human life. Now, the question I have is how were they able to develop these characteristics? Did they have seminars? Did they go to retreats? Did they have a a congregation of the smartest and the fastest bugs and snakes and other life forms that were on there? How did they ever say, okay, here's what we need to do. We need to develop wings. So in order to develop wings, this is what I think we ought to do. And maybe they tried that for a thousand years and they saw that it wasn't working. So they found another method at another congress. How did they ever do that? How could they possibly, within themselves, develop the ability to adapt into an entirely different species in order to preserve themselves? So here's where this is getting incredibly difficult to defend with a straight face. DNA testing. With DNA testing and genetic testing, this theory is getting embarrassingly difficult to defend. Here's what DNA testing has taught us. Every living thing has a complex genetic code stored in its DNA that determines its fundamental characteristics. DNA contains the information that enables the organism to reproduce, preserve, and repair itself. What an amazing thing takes place inside of a cell through the complex genetic structure that God created. So the genetic structure of every living organism limits that organism to what it is, no more and no less. This is what genetics has taught us. There is no genetic information that can enable an organism to transform itself into something that it is not. So what the theory of evolution says is that snakes developed from other life forms and they developed the ability to walk or to fly or to climb so they could find more food. And what evolution says is they changed their complex genetic structure at the molecular DNA level to become something that they were not. A DNA molecule, this is a DNA molecule, one of the largest molecules known to science, uh, 
consists of two long strands twisted into a double helix and joined by hydrogen bombs. So what you can see here is the twisting. You can see the hydrogen bonds. If you could unravel and stretch out Listen to this. If you could unravel and stretch out the DNA in one human cell, it would be more than five feet long and only 50 trillionths of an inch wide. You can't see 50 trillionths of an inch. On a good day, you can see a hair, but on a bad day, you can't even see a hair. I was not able to find a comparison of the size of a hair and 50 trillionths of an inch to even show what that might even look like. It's microscopic, Tony would know. It's microscopic on a level that would cause someone to say, well, that's incredible. Think about this. The DNA of a single cell would stretch to five feet and the the diameter of a... 50 trillionths of an inch. Within the human body, there are 100 trillion cells. And these cells have the ability to repair, to recreate, and to preserve themselves. And that happened accidentally over the course of hundreds of millions of years. How... Is it possible that something like that could even be? So the genetic information that defines what one is and what one cannot be, how does that, where does that information come from? They don't have an answer for that. It just happened. Kind of like how do you explain the 100 billion galaxies that are out there? Well, they just happened. But where did all the matter come from that enabled them to be there? It was just there. So, it is known that genes sometimes mutate. You may have even heard that. Changes occur in the DNA structure that cause changes in the appearance of creatures. So the question is, could a series of random mutations explain how one species evolves into another? Well, the honest answer to that question is no. Mutations can alter or destroy existing information in an organism's genetic code, but they cannot add new information. You've heard the old saying, a leopard can't change its spots. There's a lot of truth in that, but there is some... There is some change that actually can take place within that. We'll talk about that here in just a second. So mutations are genetic mistakes. They can cause a form of evolution known as microevolution, where the characteristics of a species are slightly altered. Different breeds of dogs and different families of horses are product of microevolution. But genetic mistakes cannot explain macroevolution, the theoretical process by which a whole new species is formed. What that basically says is you can't take a species of bug and have its genetic makeup changed so that it's no longer a bug, but now it's a snake. 
and you can't change the genetic makeup of a snake so there's something now that can fly. You just can't do that. It's scientifically impossible, but this is what the theory of evolution hangs on, is the ability for macroevolution, species change, to actually take place. So while it is easy to understand how a species of insect might through genetic mutation lose its wings and its ability to fly. There is no known genetic process that might explain how any species of non-flying creature could develop anything as complex as wings and aerodynamic capability. Here's the example of this. Since 1910, when the first mutation was observed, scientists have logged nearly 3,000 random mutations within a fruit fly. The fruit fly has been studied for over a hundred years. It's gone through over a hundred logged, excuse me, a thousand, three thousand random mutations. And according to the geneticists, all the mutations are harmful or harmless. None of them produce a more successful fruit fly. What does that tell us? You can't change genetic makeup to have a new species evolve from an existing one. It is genetically impossible, yet that is what the theory of evolution teaches us. Now, we'll talk more about evolution as we get into the next part of creation with the beasts of the field and with man. But let's take a look at two amazing creatures that God created on day five when he said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let the birds be filled, let the, let the skies be filled with birds. This is a picture of a sea cucumber. These are spineless, slug-like sea creatures with five rows of tube feet that run lengthwise like the seam of a football. They have a mouth at one end that is surrounded by tentacles. The sea cucumber feeds by stationing itself where an ocean current brings it a steady supply of plankton and tiny shrimp and other organic particles. It spreads the tentacles to collect the food and then sticks the tentacles in its mouth one at a time, sucking the food off. A peculiar variety of fish known as the pearl fish takes shelter during the day inside the sea cucumber where it feeds on the internal organs of the sea cucumber. The sea cucumber is not harmed by this because it can regenerate its own organs. The sea cucumber has an amazing defense mechanism. When attacked, it will expel its internal organs. The predator is usually satisfied with this feast, and the sea cucumber simply regenerates a new set of organs. Now, I'd like to understand how they develop that ability in order to protect themselves from their predators. Another defense mechanism is a glue-like substance that it secretes. If this substance happens to get in your hair, you will not be able to get it out. You'll actually have to shave your body in order to remove yourself from the slime that they secrete. So how did sea cucumber develop these abilities? Another creature that God created is the red-cocketed woodpecker. This woodpecker has four toes that enable it to cling firmly to the sides of a tree. It uses its long, sharp beak to chisel holes in a long-leaf pine tree, and it builds its nest in holes that is chiseled out of living trees. A single bird might take three years excavating a home. Three years! 
Don't you think if the woodpecker was really that evolved, it could find a much quicker way to make a hole? The woodpecker's primary predator is the rat snake. Rat snakes can climb trees, so as a protective measure, the woodpecker woodpecker drills small holes above and below its nest. Resin seeps from the small holes and oozes down the side of the tree. When the rat snake comes in contact with the resin, its scales get gummy and the snake is unable to climb the tree. That's an interesting feat right there. So in order to keep the sap flowing, the woodpecker must maintain the resin holes on a daily basis. The bird's presence is helpful, not hurtful, to the tree because it feeds on insects and carpenter ants, which would inf- which would eventually destroy the tree. Listen to this: a woodpecker can peck up to five hundred times a minute, striking the wood with a tremendous force at a rate of eight times per second. The bird's beak hits the wood at a speed of about 13 miles an hour, which means the head impacts the tree with more force than you would feel if you ran headfirst into a tree as fast as you could. And he does that 500 times a minute. The woodpecker's head is constructed with a built-in shock-absorbing system that cushions the brain. Those are some pretty smart woodpeckers or some pretty dumb woodpeckers, depending on how you think about what it is they do. But the reality is, God created them to do this. Listen to this. This is, this is absolutely amazing. Bird migration is another example of the Creator's infinite wisdom. Many birds migrate long distances each year with uncanny precision. Did you know, and we'll talk about this, this is an Arctic turn, but did you know that when a a Canada geese nests, the geese that are produced in that place automatically know where they were birthed and they will automatically return to that place even if there's no water there? How are they able to do that? Well, the Arctic Tern holds the record for the longest migration. They travel from the North Pole to the South Pole and back again every year. It's a round trip of approximately 25,000 miles. Most birds that migrate long distances fly mostly at night, and they do this because they navigate by the stars. Studies have shown that even birds raised entirely indoors can orient themselves properly the first time they see stars. Tests done in planetariums show that birds know which direction to fly, even in an artificial sky, if the stars are properly placed. When the star alignment in the planetarium is incorrect, the birds are confused and they don't know which direction to fly. How is it that birds have acquired this uncanny ability to migrate to the same place season after season after season, and they're offspring doing the same thing, how is it that they've developed that ability? Well, the answer is that it is innate in their DNA code given to them by the Creator when He said, let the skies be filled with swarms of flying birds. (laughs) 
God's creation of living creatures is intelligent and it is intentional. Verse 21 concludes, And God saw that it was good. (laughs) Another understatement. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you're a, you're a painter. And in your studio, you have a, you've got a hundred easels set up with a canvas. And you would set about to paint... 100 different species of creature, whether it be in the water or on the sky, in the sky or even on the earth. Think about how difficult it would be to create those with no picture image for them to be accurate. Think about how much time, how much energy, how much effort it would take to do that. And yet God, with the spoken word, in an instant, created it all intelligently and intentionally to display His power and His wisdom leading up to the penultimate of God's creation, man, created in His image. Pray with me, please. Father, we